Greetings, friends. This is Why Whiskey, a history podcast with a whiskey problem. Or is it a whiskey podcast with a history problem? We'll let you decide. Head on up to the bar, grab a stool and a drink, and let's talk. Friends, welcome back to the Bar of Questionable Life Choices. I am your host, Ian. This is Why Whiskey. We are back after what the time between recordings always feels so long, and I don't know why that is. It sucks. The last recording I did was with Lisa Charlotte, and that was an adventure all of in itself. Great time, lots of fun. Uh, we we talked for another hour and a half afterwards. It was an adventure. We drank a lot of whiskey that show, a lot of whiskey, but uh, that feels like forever ago. So much, I feel, has <laughs> happened since then. Uh, the 4th of July happened. There was a bunch of work stuff, but anyway, all that to say, uh, I'm back in the studio with a new setup, which makes me super happy, and uh, a new topic. So tonight... As you sit here and join me, some of you on YouTube Live, hello friends, uh, we are going to be discussing a conflict that occurred in the United States that was very busy and had a lot of things going on, but it is probably one of the most forgotten about conflicts in our history, and that is the War of 1812, how it started, why it started, some of the shenanigans that occurred, and its storybook crazy ending are all things that we're going to be covering here tonight on the show. I'm so glad you're here. Buckle in, and let's get started. Now, as we get started, the first thing that we must do is drink. We must drink. So tonight, uh, I'm going scotches. I, I feel like I've done pretty heavy on the bourbons and rye lately, and i got to give some love to a, a couple of new bottles I've got sitting around here that I have yet to open. So uh, I've got two new bottles and then one old friend, I'm going to call it. It's my, my good old friend. So uh, we'll get to these as we kind of pick along. The first one that we're starting with, though, is, and I, I'm probably going to say it wrong, Balvini. This is their 12-year double wood. This is kind of like their their flagship, right? Uh, single malt. It uh, It is finished in both sherry and what's the other one? There's two different types of barrels. Oh, boy. So it's sherry and what looks like bourbon barrels. It says whiskey oak, whatever whiskey oak is. But anyway, so it's finished in those. After it ages for a while, it spends... Uh, roughly about three or four months in the the casks to to marry the flavors, right? Or they they blend it all together. So this is a, I believe it's a space side, which is weird for me because I'm I'm normally a, a Highland Scotch kind of guy because it's the most like bourbon and bourbon's where I got my start and it made me super happy. Well, let's see how this goes. Here we go. 
beautiful. Sugar sweet, just grassy, the, the, the wonderful sense of scotch. And it is, it's a lower proof. So it's 43 ABV, so 86. Definitely can, can pick out the sherry in here. And I feel as though there's, I don't know, uh, I, honey has been a, a a note that I haven't been getting lately. I don't know if my nose is in a weird spot or my palate's in a weird spot, or, and I don't know how the, all that was working out. But uh, again, I, I, not that honey has much of a smell, but it, I don't know, just that sweetness, kind of like sticky smell. Anyway, here we go. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's, that's really good. Dude, chocolate. Like, I just got a mouthful of freaking just uh chocolate like um uh the, what are those little square chocolates that have they've got like the nuts in them um oh shit i can't remember their name but that's that's what i'm getting holy smokes hmm. very good very very good i like this all right here we go the war of 1812 when was it well it's in the name where and what caused it so let's talk about that just a little bit so two things that have been narrowed down to be the main causes of the War of 1812 is trade restriction and impressment. And now we're going to talk about trade restriction first. So on the subject of trade restriction, right? So Britain was blocking off merchant ships from doing business across the sea. This may or may not have been influenced by a little tiff they were currently having with this short, angry fella from France. Some of you might know him as Napoleon and gave this cute little name of the tiff called the Napoleonic War. We'll talk about that again later. But because of this, and U.S. being neutral in all of this, uh, they started putting down the hammer on trade and started doing some pretty intense trade restrictions. They weren't the only ones. France started doing the same thing. So what they both did is they both came out and said if they caught U.S. ships— delivering goods to either one of the countries, they were going to sink the ships. And then there was this period of where, like, uh, France kind of held U.S. ships in port in France. So this started getting uh, kind of intense. And England was really kind of pushing the the narrative on this. Uh, France just kind of did it because they didn't want to get one-upped. So <laughs> with the threat of destroying and, and restricting their trade, uh, America had to do something. But that's just the one little part of it. The big part is called impressment. Now, what is impressment? Impressment is when uh, a force captures another force, and then they take the force that they captured, and they make them work for them. So, once captured by England, sailors would be pulled off of ships and forced into service of the English Navy. Little kidnappy, right? Absolutely. At the time, the British Navy was not paying well and treating their sailors incredibly poorly. This led to high amounts of desertion, and many of those deserters were jumping ship from England and actually joining the U.S. Navy or the U.S. merchant fleets. This pissed England off. Frustrated by the desertion, the British Navy started boarding U.S. vessels and taking anyone they determined to be of English descent, which considering the incredibly young age of the nation and where we kind of started, literally could have been everybody. Pretty much. At least a bunch of folks. The final straw for the U.S. was an event off the shore of Norfolk, Virginia, where the HMS Leopard attacked and boarded the USS Chesapeake and took three sailors 
who had deserted the British Navy. Two of these sailors were Americans. So there were Americans serving in the British Navy who deserted and then started serving in the American Navy and then were captured back. This gets confusing. Just try to stay with me, right? The sailors would be taken, held, but eventually returned. However, this event enraged Americans, and they demanded action. So Thomas Jefferson, the sitting president at the time, decides to do something. Cue the Embargo Act of 1807. The Embargo Act of 1807 was placed into effect by President Jefferson with the intention of withholding food supplies from France and England in hopes that the attacks on American vessels would stop. However, (laughs) it didn't work. England simply just aimed south and went to South America and started getting all their food stuff there. And France, being landlocked in Europe and having pretty much full control at this point of everything, had no effect whatsoever. The food imports were not a big deal to either one of them, so therefore, the Embargo Act did nothing. So the trade restriction continues. Something else that gets mentioned, and it's hard to quantify this one. I'm going to list a bunch of source material and documents, and you guys can go look through them all, and you, and, and you guys can kind of tell me what you think. Uh, I was able to see some assertions, but not a lot of evidence to back up those assertions. The assertion was the Brits were supplying the Native Americans with weapons, and these Native Americans were then re- resisting the Western migration of Americans. So when we talk about West, we're not talking about the prairie yet. We're talking about Michigan. We're talking about uh, Illinois. That's the Wisconsin area. That's kind of where the West was at this time. So with the Brits arming these folks, uh, the Native Americans, and the Native Americans resisting the expansion, uh, President Madison kind of comes out in his letter to the House and the Senate on June 1st, of 1812, was five years after the Embargo Act flopped, asks for a resolution of war. Now, Madison does allude that the Native American tribes in the West are being armed by the Brits and conducting brutalities against the Americans during the expansion. Uh, but again, uh, none of this is, there's no dates, there's no names, there's not, you know what I mean? And again, the letter from Madison to the Senate will also be posted. You can look over that too, and it's right towards the end where you can see that. So now, We're banging the drums of war. We want to go. Or do we? The Americans were split on the subject of a second war with England. The Democratic-Republican Party supported the war, and they were led by what they called, quote, war hawks that were generally located in the South and the very young West, Kentucky, right? And this particular party happened to be mildly pro-France. Something that's important to note I believe the influence of being su- the, the Native Americans being supplied with weapons may have had a little bit more push here with the folks in the West, simply because that was the line. That was where they were going. However, the Democratic Republicans were opposed by the Federalists. The Federalists are located at this point in time mostly in the Northeast, far closer to the action which was happening in Canada, which is where England was. So they're a lot closer there. Now, the Federalists sought a more of a connection and a business relationship with England. So let's have a convention. The Hartford Convention, to be precise. The Federalists, located mostly in the New England area, looked to secede from the Union. They actually talked about leaving the Union because of this war. 
And allegedly, they sent a secret delegation to England to discuss separate terms of peace. However, the convention did too little too late. And with the end of the war and no real definitive action coming from the Hartford Convention, the Federalist Party would come to an end. But let's rewind just a little bit. In June of 1812, Congress and the Senate voted to declare war on Great Britain. Barely. Quote, the vote in the House was 79 to 49. Nearly 4 in 10 representatives voted against the measure. The vote in the Senate was even closer, with 19 senators in favor and 13 opposed. It remains the closest vote in America's five formally declared wars. End quote. That's coming from MPS.gov. So Madison signs the Declaration of War on June 5th. And it's done. Here we go. We have ourselves a war. But England doesn't seem to know yet. Poor communication is a theme in this war and something that we'll be talking about with regularity because communication between the two countries was very slow and it was very poor. And this slow, poor communication will actually put a funny twist on the final battle of the war, which is a case study in irony, according to Alanis Morissette. And the theme of slow, bad communication actually, had it been better, could have avoided the war altogether. But the declaration of war was done when the Brits showed up with the notice that they were withdrawing the trade restrictions. However, like the scene from the movie A Christmas Story, where Flick is stuck to a frozen pole begging for help and everyone else has got to go because, quote, the bell rang, end quote, America said, well, we already declared war, so we have to war now. In the same theme as the bell rang. So hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to war we go. So now that we're on our way to war, let's talk a little bit about, nope, start that over. Now we're on the way to war. Next section is going to talk about some fires, some fighting, and kind of where the war went along the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Folks, welcome back. We are going to talk about some of the fighting that took place during the war. Now, there there was a lot of fighting. There's a lot of moving parts and pieces. I don't think I can do them all justice. So I kind of picked a few of them to look at specifically and some things that made more significant impacts and some people that had uh, bigger parts to play and some things that are forgotten uh, at times. So we're going to slowly kind of work through this. But before we do that, we're moving on to whiskey number two. And whiskey number two is the old friend, my old friend, Lagavulin 16. It's so good. It's so good. It is the peatiest of whiskeys that I have ever had. Uh, it is intense, but it's also one of these ones that if you let it sit, you just let it chill, a lot of that smoke and that intensity kind of fades away a little bit, still present, never goes away entirely, 
It's still present, just tones down the volume a little bit. And that's when you come through with this incredible just burst of flavor uh, on the back end. Scotch is a, is a slow drinking game. And it's one that I, I have to work with. Because you know, unlike bourbons, where you get that, that bold directness right up front, uh, and it just goes, you know. Scotches are meant to, to take time and to, to let breathe and to let just kind of hang out. And I need that from a time to time. I, I need to up my scotch game a bit so I can, I can actually just chill out a little bit, I guess. All right, here we go. Let's talk about Lagavulin. So Lagavulin comes from the Isla region of Scotland. Islas are famous for their peat. Those are the, the really smoky, punchy-in-the-face uh, whiskies that are just uh, some folks render them uh, like uh, campfire and band-aids uh, and some of them can be I had an octomore that freaking rocked my socks off this despite the peat just has a, a delicate feel to the nose it feels just kind of gentle um It's like the cleanest fire you've ever smelled. <laughs> if I can, if that makes sense, it's uh, <laughs> it's beautiful, clean smoke, right? It's not like you didn't just throw in a plastic bag and you got the like chemical stuff, right? You've got just some some wonderful clean wood burning around a campfire, you know, and, and it's a good evening kind of smell. It's it's awesome. So, flavor wise. Now, this is me going into it early. Holy shit. All the smoke is right there on the flavor. It's literally just smoking, just thick, heavy. But we're going to let this chill. I'm going to come back here in a little bit. I'm going to drink it again. I'm going to tell you what I get the second time around. Because right there, it was uh, tons of peat and lots of wood. But I think it's going to chill out just a little bit. Just, just a little bit. So this is a smoke, uh, excuse me, this is a peated single malt, 16 years old, out of the Lagavulin Distillery. If you can, get your hands on it. It's so fucking good. It is, it is so good. But alas, we are done talking about the whiskeys, and now we will move back into the fights and the fires. So the first conflict we're going to talk about is the Battle of York, which is now present-day Toronto. On 27 April 1813, the U.S. invaded Canada with a force of 2,700 strong against a far lesser opponent as the Brits only had 750 soldiers stationed at Fort York. The Brits, led by British... <clears throat> Ooh, that's, that's hard for to say. The Brits, led by British General Roger Hale Shape, decided to retreat and take refuge elsewhere. Before they even got to fighting, they got to running. So, they put themselves in a safe place in order to discuss their terms of surrender. As was common, the retreating force decided that its ammo stores couldn't be captured, so they needed to set them on fire. One particular ammo magazine, magazine is the box or the room that they store all the gunpowder, contained hundreds of barrels of gunpowder. Obviously, lighting that on fire was a bad idea. 
that fire led to a catastrophic explosion that would kill and injure over 200 Americans. One of those being General Zebulon Pike, a beloved leader at the time in the Army. This misstep or direct action, depending on how you look at it, was not received well by the Americans, kind of understandably, who then went on to ransack and burn the government offices and businesses throughout the town. This favor would be returned in kind by the Brits, but with far greater significance a little over a year later. But we'll get to that soon enough. A lot of the War of 1812 was fought in the water, I can't say the ocean or the seas. i got to say water because a lot of the battles took place on the Great Lakes. The Battle of Lake Erie occurred on September 10th of 1813. For the Americans, this battle was led by Oliver Hazard Perry, probably the coolest name in the entire conflict. Perry would carry flags on his boats with the words, quote, don't give up the ship. End quote. Those words made famous by Perry's friend James Lawrence. You might remember his name and story when I sat down with the folks from the E-14 podcast and we talked about the history of the Navy. Perry sailed from Put-In Bay to meet Robert Barclay and his six British war vessels. Perry himself was in command of eight. Perry was young. He was only 27 when he was chosen to lead. His vigor and passion won him the loyalty of his men and the admiration of his leaders. He quickly formed a fleet of ships but had no sailors to man them. He wrote to his leaders often and said, Give me men. I will acquire honor and glory for both you and myself or perish in the attempt. End quote. British officer Barclay was close and Perry wanted that fight. Perry would get that fight. And although receiving great damage to his boats, Perry would come away victorious. His victory at the Battle of Lake Erie would start a little bit of a domino effect in the Great Lakes region. This would inspire the Army of the United States to take on the Brits at Fort Detroit. The Battle of the Thames would happen on October 5th, 1813. Fort Detroit was destroyed by the fleeing Brits who left. The Brits, at this point in time, betrayed one of their greatest Native American allies, Tecumseh, and his fighters. The Native Americans took a final stand against the U.S. forces here, but to no avail. And in the end, the loss of their leader, Tecumseh, would dissolve the Indian Confederacy and see them turn their backs on the British forever. Again, we're kind of missing some, some other parts and pieces about the war uh, that involved the Brits and the Native Americans and kind of how they came to be. If you look up the Battle of Tippecanoe, that can kind of give you some more information on where that alliance occurred and how it occurred and how it was rolling. But we've only got so much time, and I want to make sure I don't miss the highlights. So at this point in time, we're rolling into 1814. This would indicate a shift for the British. The Napoleonic War ended. 
and this would allow England to send over the seasoned and far better sailors, soldiers, and officers that it was utilizing to fight the French. That's right, boys and girls. At this time, we were fighting England's second string. This is not good because the second string was holding their own. Now, here come the starters. And as Samuel Jackson would say in that one dinosaur movie, quote, hold on to your butts, end quote. With the newly launched A-team on their way, they set their sights for the East Coast and for the South. England would look to cut the country into two sections, the Northeast and the Port of New Orleans. This would effectively render the U.S. a lame duck and would disable any chance of rapid resupply, would also choke out their ability to get any sort of resources and trade for money. The fight would kick off in Bladensburg, Maryland, a town located just north of D.C. and just south of Baltimore. Both towns were viewed as strategic goals by England, one for its mental effect on the U.S., the other its logistical significance. Can you guess which was which? Bladensburg doesn't go well for the U.S., partly due to all the chiefs in the area at the time of the fight, to include the commander-in-chief, James Madison, decided to show up, and they were all playing good idea fairy, instead of simply supporting the seasoned commanders on the ground. I'm looking at you, John Armstrong Jr., Secretary of War, and General Fucker-Up of Defensive Plans. Despite the intervention of the Goobers, General Winder, the U.S. commander in Bladensburg, did the best he could with his mostly militia fighting against the A-team seasoned British regulars. England would win and force the Americans to retreat. Well, this is a problem because there was no retreat or fallback plan. The militia simply scattered and ran for their lives leaving the road to the nation's capital quite literally open and uncontested. Remember that whole burning York thing we talked about a little while ago? It happened a few years before Bladensburg? Yeah, the British did too. And they decided to return the favor and did so in incredibly dramatic fashion. English soldiers would sack and burn Washington, D.C., specifically the White House, which wasn't called the White House at the time. It was called the Presidential Mansion, the Capitol Building, and the Secretary of War Office, just to name a few. As Americans watched their Capitol burn, the wind was slowly taken from their sails. It was time for this fight to end. So now, a meeting takes place in Ghent to get this whole thing sorted out. But not before a feisty fella from Tennessee would lead a ragtag group of soldiers, militia, Native Americans, pirates, yeah, the ARG kind, and free persons of color against the British Navy and would hand the British a blistering defeat. But we can't get to New Orleans without talking about Fort McHenry. Now, if you listen to the National Anthem episode a couple weeks back, Fort McHenry will be very familiar to you. After they burned D.C., they tried to go to Baltimore and take Baltimore. If they could capture Baltimore, they would have a tactical advantage over the entire United States. However, 
after the pounding that McHenry took and still stood strong, the Brits were pushed back away from Baltimore and were never able to gain that tactical advantage. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about the last fight of the war. What led up to it, who led it, how it started, and what the guy who led it felt about it. See you in just a few. Hey friends, it's Ian. I want to ask for your support. Yes, I'm doing it. I'm that guy. So there's a couple different ways you can support the show. If you want to support the show for free, all I need you to do is hop over to iTunes or Podchaser.com and drop me a review. These reviews help kind of bolster my ability to get out there and have more people see the show and come and enjoy the whiskey and history and shenanigans that we enjoy on a bi-weekly basis. Now, if you want to go a little bit deeper and you want to hand over a dollar or two, that would be awesome. I have started a page on buymeacoffee.com. So the link is in the show notes, www.buymeacoffee.com slash whiskey. You can make a donation of however big or however little you want. That's just going to help me buy coffee to stay awake, to keep writing, researching, and pushing this show out to you guys, looking for more guests, and just being an all-around freaking, you know, general kind of fun whatever. To those who choose to donate on Buy Me A Coffee, you will be sent a private link. A private link that will take you to the video vault of Why Whiskey. Yes, we record the videos. So you get to see me and a guest, or just me sometimes, putting the show together. Unedited, nothing. You get to see the flubs. You get to see just exactly how much I say um. Ever notice that it's crazy anyway two ways to support drop me a review or go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash why whiskey and make a small donation to the show thanks cheers welcome to talking shiz i am cj and i am maddox and our podcast is like a radio show we have no certain topics we talk about anything and everything, and our opinions don't matter. And we do have a pod page. What is our pod page where folks can find our platforms and what we're all about, Maddox? I'm glad you asked. As a matter of fact, that is podpage.com forward slash talking without a G uh, dash shiz. And that's where our it's our one-stop shop. It has everything there. It has all of our donation links. It has all of the content that we have created, our recent related reviews, and it even gives you where you can find us on different applications such as Google, uh, iHeartRadio, you name it. We're in almost in every single uh, branch of applications out there. So please check it out. There's even, if you wanna become an official shizzler, we even have merchandise. So definitely go there, check it out, and yeah, it's literally the best one-stop shop. Absolutely, and sharing is caring, so make sure you guys share, share, share. We're on Twitter, and that's talking underscore shiz, Instagram, talking underscore shiz. We have Facebook, we got our pod page, we have different platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, what Maddox said, we are everywhere. So definitely check us out, and we definitely appreciate you guys listening. Yes, thank you guys, and we'll see you on one of our episodes.
Okay, let's talk about the grand finale. The grand finale of the War of 1812 happens in New Orleans. That fight for the Americans is led by a little angry man by the name of Andrew Jackson. Infamous, famous, like him, hate him, whatever. He was the dude in charge. Andrew Jackson leads an army to fight for the port town of New Orleans. In his letter to James Monroe about the New Orleans fight, Jackson walks the Secretary of War through the battle and all the events leading up to it. A copy of this letter will be posted in the show notes. You should check it out. It's very interesting to get the perspective of the fight from the guy who was leading it. Very interesting. Jackson indicates, however, through to the lead-up of the fight in New Orleans, he had to take a pause and handle some other business that he deemed related to that fight, specifically the Spanish. He had to go do some fighting and clear out some folks because he believed that the Spaniards were enabling the Brits and helping support them in their fight. So instead of going directly to New Orleans, he kind of takes a detour and heads to Mobile, Alabama and Pensacola, Florida. He cleans out some some unwanted in those areas before he goes. His letter is very interesting because in this letter he says that he is he apologizes actually at one point in time saying that he's sorry that he was not able to play better politician in these because Spain was supposed to be our friend and our ally and he went and just totally fucked him up. So he kind of apologizes to that, but he felt it was important that he shut off any sort of support uh, by the Brits there. Now, now the fight in New Orleans is complex, and there's a lot going on there. There were some issues with martial law. At one point in time, Jackson thought that the local leadership of Louisiana was acting with the British, and therefore he went and locked them out of the House and Senate uh, <laughs> and did not allow them to go in and, and do their jobs because he thought that they were in cahoots with the Brits. So he had to shut that off. So he just locked the door, said, no, you're done. In his letter, he writes this, quote, this may have been an act of rudeness towards our worthy friend and neighbor, but not warranted by civilities, which govern the intercourse between polished nations, nor consonant to the modern American mode of carrying on war. I am but little versed in the etiquette or punctilios of these matters, and I must take liberty of adding that whenever I shall be entrusted with the defense of an important section of my country, I am quite sure it will not be sacrificed by too strict an attention to them. So what is he saying? <laughs> he's saying he doesn't really care. He's going to fight the best way he knows how. So as forces were converging on New Orleans, it appears that Jackson decided to take a little bit of a distraction and handle some business elsewhere. This was the biggest fight of the entire war. The Battle of New Orleans would be the largest battle of the conflict and was a decided victory for the U.S. But getting to the fight was tough. The folks from Tennessee, some 2,000 volunteers led by General Coffee, were forced to conduct daily marches to get them from Tennessee to New Orleans. Jackson writes, quote, General Coffee, having received my order, was barely enabled to reach me in time by forced marches of 60 miles a day. 
His partial force had become greatly reduced by the multiplied hardships and privations it had been compelled to undergo since it left Mobile. 60 miles a day. Dramatic emphasis implied. General Carroll, who descended the river, was enabled by equal exertion to reach me just at the moment when his presence had become so necessary. Fortunately, however, he was but illy supplied with arms, having only 1,600 stand, and those without cartouche boxes. These, thus destitute for their equipment, were immediately distributed among his division and General Coffee's brigade. So you have one group of folks from Tennessee showing up after doing 60 miles a day, another group of folks showing up, and they don't have fucking guns. That's a mess to deal with. <laughs> the ones with the guns can't walk anymore, and the ones that can don't have guns. What do you do? And let's put this into context a little bit, too. We talk about moving 60 miles a day. You're walking. And when we think about that, some of us may have hiked a good portion, a good ways. I The longest one I think I've done has been... I think it was like 14, 14 or 15 miles. And that was lightly packed with just water and snacks. I had great shoes and very comfortable light clothing. None of that existed for these soldiers and these militiamen that were marching down roads that were not improved. So the only thing we had in common was probably the road conditions. Roads that we, in today's term, would call trails. So... Uneven, rough terrain in shoes that were probably more moccasin in style than actual shoe. With wool clothing, very heavy wool clothing. Remember, in timeline two, this is in the fall. And we're in the south in the fall, so it's probably pretty warm. And they're doing this for 60 miles a day. And they got their guns. The guns alone are like 17 pounds. And then all the ammo and all the other stuff that they've got going along with it. These guys were loaded down, and that really kind of puts into perspective the move that General Coffee pushed his guys to make. 60 miles a day. It was intense. So this is all going down. We're now in the end of December, getting close to Christmas time, December 24th specifically. Something else very important happened on December 24th, which kind of makes the whole Battle of New Orleans a little funny and the fact that it occurred after the war was over. Wait, what? That's right, folks. The Treaty of Ghent was signed by both the British and the uh, American negotiators on the 24th of December. The terms were agreed upon and sent back to the host nations for ratification. So from Ghent, it went to England. And again, remember that slow communication thing that happened? After it got approved, it went through the ratification process in England with no major changes. It then had to go to get ratified in the U.S. So that's right. In that time, the Battle of New Orleans was occurring. Neither side knew that the fight was over and that there was supposed to be a truce called until everything was ratified. Now, let's clean this up a little bit. There was no ratification at this time. So technically, the treaty had not been accepted by the United States government. However, both parties had signed uh, the treaty, and it was in the process of being accepted. It was not accepted or ratified by the Senate until February 16, 1815. So you're looking at nearly two months of process it took from agreement to ratification in England and then to move on to the uh, to move on to ratification in the United States. 
So the Treaty of Ghent itself is kind of interesting when we look at it. And again, and there'll be a link to the show notes. You can go and you can read it for yourself. It's got a bunch of articles that really kind of lay out this plan to return everything back to the way it was. Initial terms were incredibly heavy-handed by the Brits, and they totally ignored the U.S.'s demands. The second go-around yielded much better terms, but it included a term that would leave everything as it was. Essentially, nothing would change. Quote, These showed that Great Britain was willing to restore peace on the basis of uti posiditus. I my Latin is weak, I'm sorry, meaning that each side would retain whatever territory it had. This is uh, the Federalist Party Unity of War, signed, uh, written by Hickey. So legit, the Treaty of Ghent, all it did was put everybody back in place to where they were prior to. There was to be no clear victor in this war. Now, as I'm going through some of this, I find some very interesting things. I find uh, Article 10 in the treaty talks about the abolition of slavery. And one of the terms of this treaty was that. And I want to read that to you because I, it struck me as odd as, as I'm just kind of going through. Why would, that be, why would that be a thing? So Article 10 says this, Whereas the traffic in slaves is irreconcilable with the principles of humanity and justice, and whereas both His Majesty and the United States are desirous of continuing their efforts to promote the entire abolition, it is hereby agreed that both the contracting parties shall use their best endeavors to accomplish so desirable an object. You wonder if they read this when they got it back, because slavery would be a thing until that little fight we had. I think they called it the Civil War, right? So it's very interesting. I, I found it weird that that was part of the the agreements. So all the property would stay in place. The trade would resume. Slavery would end to the best of their abilities, and everybody would go back to the status quo. Very interesting. You also see mention of slavery again, and specifically with fight in New Orleans, where free persons of color and, quote, slave volunteers, end quote, were part of Jackson's fighting force. So you have to wonder the, the terminology, right? It says slave volunteers. You wonder if they were volu- if they volunteered or if they were voluntold. And to be honest, I have not found a lot of accounts uh, of slaves wanting to fight, with the exception of one particular, and that was Jordan Noble. Quote, born a Georgia slave on October 14, 1800, to African and European parents, Jordan Noble apparently had arrived in New Orleans sometime in 1812. The teenage noble joined the U.S. Army in 1813 as a free drummer for the 7th U.S. Regiment, and during the fierce night fighting of December 23rd, he kept a steady beat uh, as Andrew Jackson's troops surprised a British vanguard delaying the enemy's assault south of the city. By late December, two battalions of free men of color, as well as other free black militiamen and, here's that term, slave volunteers, had swollen Jackson's defenses at nearby uh, nearby Chemet by more than 900 men. The general's heterogeneous force consisted of U.S. Army soldiers, free blacks, slaves, Louisiana Creoles, Tennessee, and Kentucky frontiersmen. Jean Lafitte's 
barbarian privateers and a small contingent of Choctaw Indians, entrenched behind a, a defensive rampart on the east side of the Mississippi River, some seven miles south of New Orleans, to meet a series of British attacks during the late December 1814 and early January 15. A cool story about Noble, though, is he goes on. He fights in this war, and he fights in the Civil War. So there's a, there's a big story here with him and how he kind of comes about to be. So although I did state he was uh, he was a slave. He was not a slave. He was a free a freeman when he joined the fight, but there were slaves that fought with them. Now, voluntarily or not, they, they still came. So there's multiple battles uh, throughout the fight of New Orleans, uh, that occurred. The big night battle that was just mentioned in there was the battle that uh, where the Brits landed, tried to come in and, and take over this this area, and they were just absolutely repulsed. Ships were burned and caught on fire, and it was it was a hard loss. It was a hard loss, and and the the big part of that happened in the early part of January, and then so the Brits are repulsed from New Orleans. They don't get New Orleans. Jackson is a winner. As the Brits are pulling away from New Orleans, they stop in Mobile, and they actually end up taking over the fort at Mobile and um, doing some more fighting at that time. That is when they get the word that the treaty has been signed, and everybody says, whoop, time out. So the Brits retreat. There's an island just off the coast of uh, Alabama right there. They chill out on the island until they get the final word that, in fact, they were done. The war was over, and they were going home. So again, big parts of the battle happened after the war was technically over, making it very interesting and very, very bizarre. Just a weird, a weird fight. So a quick rundown of the timeline of the battle. December 23rd, 1814, British landing, and there's a battle at night. The British would advance uh, to Bayou Catalan, capturing... 30 militiamen, as well as Major Gabriel Vieira, who then escapes. Jackson leads an attack after nightfall, and he stops the advance. The 25th, Christmas Day, General Peckenham arrives and takes command of the British ground forces in Louisiana. Sappers are ordered to cut the levee and flood the ground between the two armies. But the flooding doesn't really work. British gunners destroy American sloop the Carolina on December 27th. January 4th and 5th of 1815, Jackson receives 2,300 Kentucky militiamen. And these are those folks that showed up without any guns or really proper clothing. So John Lambert helps out and throws together some guns and some clothes, and they start to get ready for a grand assault on the American line. The final battle of New Orleans happens on January 8th of 1815. Quote, The main British attack on the east bank of the Mississippi is repulsed with heavy British casualties and the deaths of General Pakenham uh, and Gibbs, Pakenham's successor. Major General Lambert decides that he cannot exploit a successful British attack on the west bank and orders his forces to withdraw. This is where the Brits start to pull out. And then February 11th through 13th, there is another battle at Mobile Point. That's what I was talking about earlier, where the British attacked and captured Fort Bower, Boy, excuse me, Boyer, on Mobile Point. And they get ready to move inland. That's when they get the word. And so they pull back and they sit on Dauphin Island. 
just off of Mobile Bay, and they wait. March 5th of 1815, the Brits pack up and they go home. March 9th, they finally get the word. Oh, correction, March 13th, the official dispatch shows up. So with the Brits on their way home, Jackson finally leaves uh, New Orleans on April 6th of 1815, and then he goes on for a storied history as a future president and a man of the people, by the people, and for the people, although I think a different person said that. I don't think that was Andrew Jackson that said that, but he was he was the people's president. He was one of their own. He was a non-political dude uh, that went on to do some stuff. So with the end of the War of 1812, what did we gain? Um, nothing. What did we lose other than some boats and some boys, which are both pretty significant? Uh, we really didn't lose anything either. So this literally was a war that got nothing. That we started because folks really wanted it because they had trade restrictions and impressment. The fight went back and forth and back and forth with both sides winning and then losing and then gaining and then losing again. And uh, at the end of it, literally everybody would be given the same thing. I think the Brits would come away with a loss because with the, the losing the confidence and, and any sort of potential for uh, an alliance with the Native Americans at the time after they, they abandoned Fort Detroit and kind of left Tecumseh and his men to, to fend for themselves against a, a very well-armed American army, you know, they kind of lose that, uh, that ability, which really, I think, helps the loss of the foothold altogether that the Brits would have on the North American continent. They would eventually uh, push out of Canada years and years later, uh, but I think that we can kind of see that ball starting to roll here. They would then focus their colonization efforts in Asia and Africa and those other places there. But uh, this was kind of the start where they didn't win. They sure didn't lose. Um, so they didn't gain anything, and they ended up losing a, a potential alliance with the natives. So so really, I mean, it's a, it's a draw, kind of. But I don't, I don't know. When you go and you look through the, some of the articles and some of the, the writing about it, and certain folks will say uh, the Brits won, you know, it was, a, it was a hair margin. Some folks will say the U.S. won by just a hair margin. It, but in reality, when I look at it and I put everything together and I look at the, how the treaty was signed and what was agreed to, really uh, nobody won in reality. Nothing was gained, truly. We did have some key battles, but... They torched our capital, and that 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 kind of sucks. And that's a that's a big deal. And really, the attack on the capital is something that I can't recall being talked about very often until January sixth of twenty twenty one. A couple of y'all just rolled your eyes. A couple of folks kind of shrugged. I felt it. I felt it. But let's let's talk about that for just a sec, because folks were saying, uh, and I was one of them. You know, this our capital has not been breached since the Brits did it. Well, when did the Brits do it? Oh shit! We had to go Google the year. Why did the Brits do it? 
shit, then we had to go Google why the Brits burned down the Capitol. Wait a second. The Brits were in the Capitol after the Revolutionary War? What the, what the fuck? <laughs> Goes to show, 1812 was the time where the, this war that occurred, you know, everybody just kind of forgot about until something dramatic happened that forced us to back into this recollection. And so now we start digging in and we start looking at this this fight and, and how this transpired and what went down and what the, the successes and the failures were out of this comes our national anthem eventually you know years and years later uh, almost 100 years later actually uh, the national anthem would come from Francis Scott Key sitting on the boat watching the Brits you know pound Fort McHenry the new White House the one that we currently have would come out of this because the old president's mansion was burnt to the ground we did lose, however, the Library of Congress up to that point. Now, it was still pretty young, because remember, you were looking at 17, what, 80? Well, I mean, 1776. So there's not a whole lot of years, uh, but that's lost. A lot of that stuff is lost. A lot of the documents and stuff were saved by James Madison's wife, who luckily was able to grab her and her husband's uh, slave were able to grab a bunch of documents and stuff out of the White House and some other things that were saved in time. But there was a, there was a big loss there. It was a, a huge loss of information and, and historical data, which was kind of a bummer. And we kind of forget that we did get invaded. That they were, they were here. And this was after we were you know, declared our sovereignty and won our freedom from England. And I can't help but wonder what that would look like today. And that's one of the funny things I do with history is I sit back and I wonder and I think about these events. But what if they happened today? What if it was a thing that went down right now? What would we do? How would we respond? How would we react? What would be the outcome? And I can't get a good answer, like, in my own head. I can't put that together and I can't make it a thing <laughs> because of where we are. We're just kind of in this weird spot right now. So if we had to fight an invading force that was going to burn down our capital, how, how would we do it? Now, I think a lot more Americans have a lot more gunpowder or firepower these days. I think that's a thing. But would be we would we be willing to mildly inconvenience ourselves and risk our lives to defend our capital from uh, an invading foreign force? I don't know. I'd like to think so. I hope so. Well, I, I hope we never get to find out because that would be fucking awful. Anyway. All right, friends. That's going to wrap it up for me here at the bar. Tonight we have been talking about the War of 1812, some of the battles, some of the people, some of the weird and uh, mostly forgotten parts of a conflict that happened, the Second War with England, that occurred because trade restrictions and impressment. Thanks for listening. I'm Ian. This is Why Whiskey. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, if you have any comments, questions, or would like to join me at the Bar Questionable Life Choices for an episode, Hit me up on email at whiwhiskeyhistory at gmail.com. Cheers. <laughs>